everyone. Uh, thank you for making it to the final uh, panel of today's conference. Uh, this one is going to deal with uh, government use of drones. I know that we've heard throughout the day about some of the exciting commercial opportunities that drones raise, but I think there's also uh, significant concerns not only about the government uh, at the federal, state, and local level using drones for surveillance, but also interesting questions on how police can deal with drones being used by criminals. And I think we have a great set of speakers here. Uh, what's going to happen is they're each going to introduce themselves and speak for five minutes. Uh, I'll then moderate a, uh, a conversation about these topics, and then we'll turn it over to you to finish up before the reception. And I think we decided that, Rebecca, do you want to speak first? Yeah, sure. Great. I'm just going to go to the podium where I have sure. some notes. Yep. So I'm Rebecca Lipman. I'm an assistant corporation counsel at the New York City Law Department, though today I'm just speaking in my personal capacity, not representing the city. Um, prior to my work with the city, I was a clerk for a U.S. District Judge Ann Thompson in the District of New Jersey. Um, and my, I have an interest in privacy and Fourth Amendment law and drones. I've written a couple law review articles focused on the Fourth Amendment and data collection. So I just wanted to give you guys a quick background on sort of the legal landscape we're looking at when we talk about drones and specifically police surveillance. So the applicable case law actually would draw back from the 1980s. There are a couple cases that I'm going to just briefly go over. One is Dow Chemical versus the United States. This was a case where the EPA wanted to get into a Dow Chemical plant. Uh, they were turned away on the ground, so they decided, okay, we'll go ahead and have a look in the air. It was a 2,000-acre uh, facility. So they had a little fixed-wing aircraft. It had a little camera attached. That was the kind of camera usually used by map makers. And they took some photos. And Dow Chemical sued. There was a couple issues in the case, but relevant for our purposes, they suggested that it was a Fourth Amendment violation that they went ahead and did this surveillance without a warrant. The court looked at this, and they felt that it was not a search. And there were a couple of different things going on in the case in terms of what the court was concerned about. And I think, especially thinking about today and modern technology and sort of the prevalence, potentially, of drones, one of the things that motivated the court was they said the surveillance of private property by using highly sophisticated surveillance equipment not generally available to the public, such as satellite technology, might be constitutionally prescribed absent a warrant. But the photographs here are not so revealing of intimate details as to raise constitutional concerns. They sort of focused on the fact that there was just not anything that private feeling being covered by the camera, and it was sort of an everyday kind of camera. They were more concerned about what they viewed as a more advanced technology if it was some sort of satellite at work. Um, there are similar themes in a case called Florida versus Riley, also 1980s, 1989 case, where the police received a tip that there was somebody growing pot in his backyard. They took a helicopter, hovered above the property, saw that there were marijuana being grown, and uh, arrested him for marijuana cultivation. And again, he raised the argument that they weren't allowed to do this without a warrant. And again, the court sort of went back to some of these same factors, that they were in the air illegally, private and commercial flight by helicopter in the public airways is routine in this country. So therefore, he couldn't have gone about and expected that no one would be viewing his backyard in this way, which is sort of an interesting argument. I mean, people who have backyards, like, yes, you're aware that planes might be flying overhead. That doesn't mean you usually expect someone to be you know, hovering at a distance of 400 feet or less and specifically looking at your backyard. But again, it's sort of the court said any member of the public could legally have been flying over Riley's property in a helicopter 
at the altitude of 400 feet and could have observed Riley's greenhouse, the police officer did no more. So there's sort of an interesting thrust in these cases where the court suggests essentially if it's kind of commonplace, if they have the right to be there, that's okay. Or, or rather, you know, if it's not using anything kind of special technology, it's fine. Um, but there are a few cases that I feel suggest that the court would actually be concerned now in the opposite direction, that despite the fact that drones are becoming increasingly commonplace, that very fact would make the court more alarmed and more inclined to bring down a heavier Fourth Amendment protection. And there's been a few recent cases, I don't want to go too far over five minutes, but a few recent cases that sort of showed this desire on the court's behalf where they're concerned, and when I'm talking about drones, it's really specifically drones equipped with cameras. I don't think people are concerned with just drones per se, but specifically the idea that increasingly drones, you know, will have longer battery life, will have cameras equipped that can see fairly good distances with some level of detail. And therefore, you could imagine the police, you know, being able to just sort of hover and surveil an area for an extended period of time, and that that might raise constitutional concerns. Um, and this really cuts across ideological lines. There are a few different cases, um, and one was 9-0, the others were 5-4, but in each case, um, you had Justice Roberts joining uh, the four more liberal justices in one case, and sorry, uh, Justice Alito in concurrence going with the more liberal justices. Um, and I'll just, I don't want to go too long, so I'll just mention a couple quotes here that really it is an what Justice Roberts called an element of pervasiveness. So in this context, he was actually talking about cell phones, that he said, an element of pervasiveness that characterizes cell phones but not physical records. Allowing the police to scrutinize such records on a routine basis is quite different from allowing them to search a personal item or two in the occasional case. So it's, it's a little bit of a different take for the Fourth Amendment, this idea that rather than having bright line rules around certain police activities, instead you're going to talk about, well, how personal is what they're finding? You know, how revealing do we feel like a particular technology has the opportunity to be? And again, the dragnet quality is what's disturbing now, not the idea of like, well, if it's commonplace and the police can do it, and anybody can do it, therefore the police can do it, now they're concerned that only the few without cell phones could escape this tireless and absolute surveillance. This idea that we're going to have a surveillance state, that's something that I think the court is going to want to rise up and protect against. Right. So I think that's probably closer to attendance, but that's a little helpful background, I hope. Thanks. Uh, the next speaker is uh, has a presentation. Uh, speaking of cell phones, this might be another time to remind people to please um, put them on silent if you have them. Thank you. Uh, Great. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks. I'm uh, very, very happy to be here. Thanks for coming. Um, so I'm going to just give a pretty brief rundown on kind of the current state of play on police drone technology, both what is already um, you know, in development in the market, in departments, and what might be on the horizon. So um, just a few different points that I want to highlight down the line. First of all, um, aerial surveillance of drones can be incredibly invasive. So one particular drone I want to mention, um, or set of drones, are the Inspire 2 and Matrice. These are very commonly used drones by police departments, and they can both be equipped with uh, DJI's Zenmu Z30 camera. This is um, not exclusively um, a camera with this zoom capacity for drones, but one of the most powerful. It has 30 optical and six digital zoom, which means that you can get precision shots from 
um, well over 1,000 feet away. This is from roughly 1,200 feet. And you can actually even get pretty good visual shots from over a mile. These are um, drone footage, um, a sense that I think are taken from the uh, DJI Z30. Um, so, I mean, with this type of technology, departments could potentially have a drone buzzing thousands of feet, even a mile away, that looks nothing like a bird, if you can see it at all, watching you with precision. Second, uh, drone surveillance, drone air surveillance is very, very cheap. Now, the Inspire 2 model costs roughly $3,000. Uh, the Z30 camera that I mentioned, that's another 3000 So you have about $6,000 potentially to equip this drone with this type of very high powerful zoom, high resolution powerful zoom camera. In comparison, a police helicopter will cost you roughly $500,000 to $3 million today. And that's just for the initial cost. That's not even talking about um, operational costs, which run in hundreds of dollars per hour, and maintenance, which is a lot more expensive for a helicopter for a drone. So potentially with this type of cost range, you could, instead of purchasing a single police helicopter, purchase a fleet of hundreds of police drones. So we're talking about a whole new landscape for how many um, of these devices departments can deploy and how easily smaller departments can deploy them. And for no surprise, for that reason, a lot of departments are deploying them. Um, according to a study by uh, Bard College, the study of drones that they are constantly updating, over 900 uh, state and local agencies have in the last 10 years bought drones. Most of these are police agencies. And this is a map that we developed of um, just the Inspire Matrice models, which can be equipped with the Z30 camera, which is the footage I showed you earlier. As you can see, um, there's over 200 different departments that use them scattered throughout the country. Um, so this type of technology is already here. And these type of drones, because you have this precision from so far away, you potentially can track individuals in ways that we can't before. So two types of automated identification tracking I want to highlight first, license plate readers and then facial recognition. These are two scans we did from uh, Z30 drone footage. Um, the first is a license plate taken from a little over 1,000 feet that we ran through a publicly available license plate, an automated license plate reader scan. In less than half a second, it got us a positive ID on the plate. And on the right, using Amazon's facial recognition technology tools, we got a positive face detection on drone footage from about 500 feet away. So again, you know, this, this is the type of technology we're talking about is that you can not only watch people from very far away, but you can watch them with precision, you can identify them, and you can do so potentially without even having human involvement. And in terms of taking away that human involvement, we might even be moving towards the point where we don't need humans to have a drone follow someone. Um, this is another um, technology that is coming out from DJI. It's something called Active Track that's deployed with a few of their newer drones. Um, what that does is it locks onto an individual and it can follow them without the human pilot doing anything. The drone just locks on and continues to follow them. And it can do so moving at a speed of about 20 miles per hour. Um, some of these drones, they typically can get up to 45 miles per hour in regular mode. And this, they can only go 20 miles per hour. But that's well enough to keep pace with any pedestrian moving. Um, and that means this is another area where you potentially are going to be limiting the level of human involvement, as we're seeing with a lot of surveillance technology, when you level, when you limit that human involvement, you increase the capacity for surveillance, you increase how many people departments can watch, how easy it is for them, how cheap it is for them, and then as a result, how much information 
government can collect and catalog about you. So um, just to finish with a shameless plug, we did a bit more of a full deep dive on this um, at my organization's website. So if you can go to pogo.org, you can read a lot more about this type of technology, how broadly it's being deployed, see more of these scary GIF videos of really powerful drones. Um, and yeah, very much looking forward to discussing this more. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Jake. And, and last, by mo but by no means least, Jason. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. This, um, so far, has, I, I think, been a terrific uh, drone-related conversation this afternoon. Um, my name is Jason Sneed. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, uh, where I've had the opportunity to work on uh, drone policy issues for a number of years now. Uh, we've um, sort of historically looked at it from a regulatory side. Uh, we've looked at how we can use a federalism-based model to accomplish safe and effective drone regulation and what sort of airspace property rights you might have uh, in the low altitude airspace. But more recently, and what I'm here to talk about today, is um, how do we deal with emerging drone-related threats? Um, and specifically using counter uh, UAS or counter drone equipment and technologies to be able to accomplish uh, these, these missions, which will, uh, I think, be increasingly needed in the near term as uh, drones proliferate in the airspace, as the threats evolve, and as um, uh, you know, jeopardy to public safety becomes uh, more of an issue. Um, I want to say, though, at the beginning of this, I want to preface the remarks by saying that I agree you know, wholeheartedly with some of the things that the prior panel said about the revolutionary uh, potential of drones, the life-saving potential. We've, we've already seen that uh, a number of people have actually been saved by drones, so we don't want to get into an environment where we allow uh, fear of new technology to foreclose all of the benefits. But that being said, I think that we have to be candid that um, you know, bad actors uh, are at least as innovative as entrepreneurs in figuring out new ways to use technology technology to further their ends and their interests. And there are a number of, of real threats that we're actually seeing in our skies today, and I'll just walk through a couple. Uh, so for example, we see uh, increasingly that drones are being used to ferry contraband into prison facilities. Uh, over, over the walls, over guards, they drop um, uh, drugs, they drop weapons, they drop uh, implements to facilitate escape attempts. Uh, that can be very dangerous, of course, for both the people inside the prison and also for the community outside. We also see the drones are being used to ferry contraband across the uh, Mexican border, uh, over the heads of border patrol agents who, other than being able to visually track the drones to their destination, are largely powerless to stop them. Uh, we've seen uh, a number of instances where drones are recklessly flying where they should not be. Uh, we heard a little bit about this earlier. There was a collision between an army helicopter and a drone uh, over the Hudson River in New York. There were uh, plenty of instances where pilots had reported seeing drones flying in the flight paths at low altitudes uh, on approach or landing um, uh, at major airports. And in fact, you can go on YouTube right now and you can see uh, they're, they're very neat, but very dangerous videos of manned aircraft flying only a few feet underneath a drone. People actually put this online. And so that really, I think, brings home a lot of the, the, the safety uh, you know, issues that we're seeing emerge as drones proliferate in, in the airspace. And so far, um, a lot of the enforcement actions have concentrated on after the fact um, uh, sort of enforcement actions. So identifying the responsible party and then either you know, leveling civil fines or contacting them and doing an educational component after the fact. But what we're, I think, beginning to realize is that as the threats evolve, waiting until after an incident occurs is not going to be an appropriate way to deal with this. 
the incident in Venezuela is a, is a wake-up call and a perfect example about what can happen uh, if you allow an incident to unfold and don't have in place the proper tools, the proper training, uh, clear rules of engagement and clear lines of authority about how you're going to defend against these, uh, these incidents. And just by way of a little bit of background, in that uh, incident there were two drones with explosive devices, this is all alleged. Um, the Venezuelan government uh, doesn't have a great track record for trustworthiness, um, but uh, there were allegedly two drones involved in this armed with explosive devices. And neither one of them made it to their intended target, but they both still detonated. And that's instructive because the way that these drones were, were, were taken on by people on, in the area, one was apparently diverted by some sort of a jamming device that was, I believe, actually intended to be used for cell phone jamming purposes. But the drone careened out of control, collided with the building, and exploded and caused, in, caused injuries. The second was shot, again, allegedly by a soldier on scene, blew up in the air, and the shrapnel caused injury on the ground. And so what that tells us is that we have to know how we're going to engage a potentially hostile drone in, in what is potentially a dense urban environment and what sort of tools and techniques are appropriate to be, to be used, who is the best uh, positioned actor, is that federal, state, or local law enforcement to be able to employ counter drone systems, and then what sort of legal authorities do we need to, to, to tackle in order to ensure that law enforcement has the, not only the means and not only the, the, the knowledge to be able to do this, but also has the legal authorization to engage in counter drone activities. Because right now, what we have are a number of federal laws that uh, were written before drones became a mainstream technology that actually act in concert with one another to effectively foreclose very nearly any uh, uh, counter-drone interdiction activity. That includes statutes that prohibit the destruction of aircraft, that includes the wiretap statute, the computer fraud and abuse statute. And um, this is an issue which is live, which is in Congress right now, and in the FAA reauthorization, there's actually legislative language, and we can go into this perhaps a little bit more in the Q&A. There's actually legislative language that would, for the first time, authorize uh, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice to engage in counter-drone activities, and would clear up a lot of these legal hurdles for a limited and prescribed subset of missions all designed to enhance public safety by dealing with the drone threat. So I'll just conclude by saying that, you know, while we're doing the policy side for, for implementing drone technology and facilitating it, I think we also need to take seriously the, the emerging threats and the risks and think very clearly before there's an incident how we want to approach this whole concept of, of drone-related uh, security. Great. Thank you all. You've given me a, a lot to think about, and I have many questions for all of you. Uh, but I will start, I think, with... Uh, with Jake, so a question uh, about the unique nature of drones. Uh, does the fact that drones seem to pose some kind of unique surveillance threat require us to have drone-specific laws and regulations? So if you have a, a ban on drone surveillance, it seems to me there's nothing to stop a police officer climbing a telephone pole to look at the same thing or to use other technology. Uh, do we need drone-specific legislation or do we need a broader approach? Well, um I, I think in some ways drones might be a little easier, in some ways um, they should be viewed as more serious threats. So I mean, comparing to that example of, you know, going to a telephone pole or just taking a really powerful camera and going to, yeah, like the top of a building, a high vantage point. Um, aerial surveillance presents some unique risks because you have that vantage point where you have very few obstacles. You can monitor people effectively very well from long distance. You also have mobility. Um, so, you know, if you're at a telephone pole, you are going to have a hard time keeping up with someone as they move across a city or across a suburb or landscape. With a drone or aerial surveillance, you can follow them from a far distance, still with a good degree of precision, and you're not going to be encumbered by obstacles. 
Um, an area where I actually think drones might be a little easier is that um, it, it's very simple to put regulations on drones. Uh, about a half a dozen states have a warrant requirement or something similar for law enforcement use of drones, and that's very easy because you just you define what a drone is. It's a vehicle that flies in the air, that doesn't have a pilot. Um, the problem is that it's a lot harder to create a law for aerial surveillance when it comes to manned um, aerial surveillance. And even though drones are cheaper, easier to use, and I think present some unique threats in that sense, you still have um, some relatively cheap, very powerful potential aerial surveillance programs, um, like the one that we saw in Baltimore, operated by the Baltimore police, this persistent surveillance program, some of the FBI programs that we've seen in recent years, and those will continue to get cheaper and more effective and better in their use. And we, we don't really have an easy solution where we can differentiate those types of very pervasive uh, man programs from, you know, say, a traffic helicopter, the way that we could, say, write a law that says, okay, here's the rule for when police can use drones. Right. So a question that came to mind uh, during your remarks, Rebecca, was uh, your, your mention of more recent Supreme Court cases dealing with the Fourth Amendment, which, of course, uh, put Fourth Amendment uh, reading, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, more recent cases that I know you've talked about relate to GPS trackers, cell phone tracking, uh, and privacy rights in cell phones. How, what, how could um, Supreme Court cases dealing with those technologies have implications for drones specifically? The issue across all of those, I would say, is surveillance. As I said before, like the issue isn't so much drones per se, it's drones as a surveillance tool. Drones as a way to record and also keep that recording and potentially using facial recognition technology, compile a database where you can, you don't even have to have suspicion of a person at a given time. You can just have that suspicion, you know, depending on how long records are kept six months, a year later, and say, okay, let's go back and say, see, you know, where have you been for the past you know, year going around public spaces? Now, to my knowledge, there isn't a system currently like that in the United States, but the justices do try to look ahead a bit. They are aware that cases only come to them every so often. So when they look at a case, even the most recent one, Carpenter was dealing not with like precise GPS data, but with data based on cell tower location records, which traditionally can only pinpoint somebody you know, within a mile or two, but have gotten much more precise. So in their opinion, they weren't so much focused on the specifics in that case of you know, what did these particular records show about this individual. They were really looking at the issue of location tracking as a whole, because they're perfectly aware this is going to get more precise. And building off of Jake's point, you know, he mentioned that there's only so much you can practically do if you're climbing to the top of a telephone pole or even if you're tracking somebody in a police car. And this is a point that Justice Alito made in one of those cases where really traditionally a lot of the protections in this area have not been constitutional, they've been practical. You can't you know, have your police officers out following every individual all the time you know, based on the slightest hint. But if you have, either, it could be a network of cameras, frankly, on, on telephone poles, or very conveniently, it could be drones, so they have the power of movement. If you have a situation where you can just have drones with cameras hovering for an extended period of time, if data storage is such that you can hold on to that material for a long period of time, all of a sudden you have things moving towards a potential surveillance state, and that's something the court's going to be very nervous about. And that's why sort of all these issues of cell phones and GPS and drones are all linked. It all speaks to 
are we getting to a place where we feel like the Fourth Amendment is endangered, not because any of the things enumerated in the Fourth Amendment that you just listed, you know, the persons, places, effects, houses, and such, that's not necessarily in danger, but particularly for the more conservative justices, I think it goes to a kind of originalism, what they feel that the amendment was supposed to protect in its spirit. And then for the more liberal justices, it goes to kind of a civil liberties point. So for both ends of the court, you get a real discomfort with anything that feels like it's creeping towards a place where, you know, it's one thing if the police are perhaps just using a helicopter to go over a drug dealer's yard, it's an entirely different thing if they're compiling a database that could potentially capture everybody, particularly if it gets to a place where it can be retrospective instead of prospective. Mm -hmm. So turning to, to Jason, uh, what are the kind of technologies when you talk about counter drone, right? I've seen in the news, uh, people have talked about using uh, nets, eagles, shotguns, uh, radio jammers, all kind of things. Uh, so I suppose a question is, are any of these particularly effective ways to take down uh, errant drones, uh, but also what are the regulatory issues associated with some of these technologies? Uh, do you run potentially into issues, not just with the FAA potentially, but also the FCC uh, and uh, other agencies like that? Sure, so um, uh, first of all, I'll say, don't use a shotgun to take out a drone. That's a big no-no. Uh, secondly, my personal favorite are in fact the eagles and the birds of prey because that looks very cool, but uh, they don't like to grab onto the rotors as I think you might, uh, might be able to understand why. Uh, there are a, a wide array of emerging technologies in the counter drone space. Uh, you know, we've heard about drones as an emerging technology, so you can think of this as an even more emerging technology because you're trying to counter something which is constantly changing, constantly evolving, and you know, we can't really predict exactly what drones are going to be doing in 10 years, so that makes it very difficult to predict how you're going to counter those. Uh, but there's a range of systems that are being developed right now that are in testing right now, um, and they broadly fall into two categories. One are kinetic means of taking out a drone. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's a physical means of stopping a drone. So that could be you know, shooting it with a, a weapon. That could be using a net, um, which could be either fired from a drone or just draped from another drone and used to capture the, um, uh, the errant drone. That could be any sort of a physical uh, obstacle. Then there are non-kinetic uh, uh, means of stopping uh, uh, potentially threatening drones. And here the, the category is a little bit broader. So here you get into things like using signal jammers, uh, which are exactly what they sound like. They're means of blocking control signals to and from a drone. So you, know, you lose contact with the drone. You don't get to see what the, what the live video feed is, and you don't get to send any more control signals to it. You can use hacking tools to attempt to hack the drone software uh, and take it over and fly it to a safe destination. You can use lasers to attempt to destroy a drone uh, in that, uh, that way. There's really a wide field here. Um, now to the, the second question, um, well actually I guess I'll finish the first question in terms of the effectiveness. There's a range of effectiveness. And this is actually another area where you start to get into um, some big question marks about what counter drone systems will ultimately look like. Because if you think about it, it seems pretty straightforward that you ought to just be able to you know, shoot down a drone and that ends the problem. But you know, there you have to worry about collateral damage. If you're doing this over a football stadium, you know, well, we've known since uh, uh, time immemorial that what goes up must come down. If that falls onto a crowd, even if it's not carrying some sort of a weapon or anything else, it's going to pose a hazard to, to people and to property on the ground. Uh, if you use a jamming device, and FCC um, uh, has rules against this, if you use a jamming device, you could disrupt potentially critical communications in the area. So if someone is trying to use a cell phone and uh, they're calling 911 because their, you know, their, their wife or husband is having a heart attack and you block that signal, that could have a, a pretty serious collateral uh, consequence of using a jamming device. So uh, you know, in terms of effectiveness, you're going to have to think about a layered defense because 
there, you're not going to be able to use every type of counter drone tool in every location, and every drone is not going to be vulnerable or susceptible to each and every type of a tool. So you're going to likely have to think about some of these more high-value targets employing multiple means of defending against a drone threat. And then in terms of the legal um, problems that you run into, uh, I alluded to a few of them earlier. Uh, some of the big ones are there's actually a statute, 18 U.S.C. 32, that makes it a crime to uh, damage or destroy an aircraft. And according to the FAA, drones are aircraft. There's also a piracy, an aircraft piracy statute that says you can't seize control of an aircraft. FCC regulations prevent the use of jamming devices in the United States. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act prevents you from hacking computers. There's a, a, a litany of, of laws that are on the books right now that make it impossible or effectively impossible for law enforcement agencies to be able to engage in counter drone um, uh, technologies and counter drone operations. So that's, that's where we stand sort of at the legal, uh, the legal threshold here. It's a bit of a quagmire, isn't it? Um, I think I'd like to, to turn to, we, we've spoken a little bit about how spooky a lot of this is, but I think it's worth remembering there might be good applications of police drones, right? If they're inspecting um, uh, hazardous waste or if they're trying to look at um, a crime scene or maybe engaged in search and rescue. Uh, so a question maybe for, for Jake and Rebecca, is there a good regulatory framework that allows police to use drones in ways that we might all applaud while um, hampering their use for persistent and pervasive surveillance? Uh, would um, Do you support something like a, a warrant requirement? Uh, that seems like it might um, hamper the good use, but I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that a warrant requirement is pretty sensible. And again, this is something that you have in several states. You know, they all vary a little bit in terms of definitions, in terms of exactly what's required. But I mean, you can see that they've put these laws and you have not had horrible, you know, skyrocketing crime as a result. So, you know, I, th I think these are reasonable types of limits to place on this technology, especially as it gets more and more powerful. Um, but I think also that that's a really good point to make. And you and Rebecca both mentioned public safety is, I mean, I think it's worth distinguishing the public safety applications from drones with the law enforcement. Obviously, the, you know, law enforcement falls within public safety. But when we're talking about surveillance use of drones, evidence gathering, that's something that even if you did require warrants, you could write in a way so that it wouldn't apply to things like natural disaster response or natural, natural disaster um, you know, prevention if you're doing any sort of scouting or reconnaissance even for that sort of thing. Um, you, know, you could differentiate those types of... Um, law enforcement-based applications from more traditional fire rescue safety, um, public safety mechanisms. And then, yeah, I mean, for crime scene applications, yeah, that would create some obstacles. But, I mean, that's, that's why we have warrants and court applications and processes in general is because we want to place those reasonable limits. And, you know, I, I think it would generally work out, and in times when you have concerns, it's important to remember you always have emergency exceptions. If you have, um, you know, an imminent threat, if you have a hot pursuit, this is the sort of thing where just as those types of requirements are baked in for um, physical searches, for wiretaps, those could be baked in for drones as well. Yeah, I, I agree in terms of it. I think it's useful to distinguish those sort of public safety missions, you know, somebody's drowning, so the NYPD flies in and tries to ID exactly where they are in the water. That's, that's something very different from a criminal use. So I, I think the court and the public are sort of largely on the same page in that there's not a ton of concern about, you know, having a fire department use it, having an office of emergency management use drones for a way that's sort of purely public safety oriented as opposed to um, sort of people very much starting to get nervous when it comes to be police, you know, spying in folks' backyards with 
using drones. Um, and I, I think that sort of departments across the country have run across this, where if a police department sort of tries to get drones and not really tell anyone about it and just start using it for evidence collection, uh, communities get very nervous. I know that this happened in Seattle where they acquired some drones, also in Oakland, I believe, where you know they acquire drones, they start using them, somebody hears about it, and all of a sudden there's a big uproar and they're sort of caught off guard because you know police have all sorts of technology they're used to using. But drones, I think, particularly right now, do have a place in the popular imagination where they do seem like this sort of slightly creepy surveillance thing that people don't totally understand. And maybe it's fun if they get one in a box for Christmas, but if the police are using it, not so fun. Um, so I, I think there's sort of an ongoing feeling out on behalf of the public and the judicial system of where this is going to land. But I think it sort of makes folks feel better. And I think it can work if you sort of, if police departments want to use drones and they do so, you know, within an established framework and perhaps some sort of dialogue with the public. I think that generally has has worked better so far than if it just sort of starts happening overnight and wait till you get to court to see how it's going to be sorted out. Yeah, and so this is a question for, for all of you, so take it as you will. Uh, you mentioned the creepiness factor and it reminded me of the, the 1980s cases you mentioned, right? Some of the reasoning is, well, uh, since the late 1960s, the court has considered whether there's a Fourth Amendment violation by considering expectations of privacy, right? And the reasoning could be, well, we live in, at the time, they said, well, flight is a normal part of human life and people are on airplanes all the time, so you didn't have a reasonable expectation. Uh, and it made me wonder, well, if we have generations of people who are growing up being given drones for birthdays and Christmases and people are getting the Amazon delivery drones, uh, could... Uh, could someone make plausibly make the argument that, well, look, now we live in a world where commercial and private drones are pervasive. And so the, the creepiness to us might be very pronounced, but is there a chance that uh, drones flying around, whether they're commercial or police drones, just becomes an ordinary part of life that we grow to get used to um, and that we're viewed as the old curmudgeons? Yeah, so this is where I think the court's reasoning is really sort of might, well, it won't come back to bite them because they can just politely ignore it or write around it. But... I don't think it was entirely sincere, frankly, in those older cases when they say, well, of course, you know, folks fly above you all the time, so why are you surprised there's a helicopter in your backyard? I just, I don't, I mean, that's the reasoning in the case, but um, I think often there are, are unspoken things motivating Supreme Court cases, and I think in this case they, they just didn't feel like it was that big a deal. They didn't want to burden the police with a warrant requirement in that particular situation because they just didn't think the behavior on the behalf of the police was that objectionable. But that's where you run into this tension that I was alluding to before, where as it, because you're completely right, it's, it's sort of if it does become more commonplace, therefore your protections should logically lessen based on the court's reasoning. But there is simply this discomfort and, and you can ground it in originalism if you want, or you can ground it in civil liberties. There, there's different ways the court could go and depending on who you know, writes a future opinion on drone surveillance, we'll see which way it goes. But I, I don't think that's going to hold true. There, that sort of line of thinking also goes to like, well, younger people don't care about privacy because you know, they grow up on Facebook and they're used to everything being out there. Except then if you actually look at the behavior of young people, it doesn't bear out. They actually, they're very conscious that yes, their entire lives are on Facebook. So they leave Facebook, they go to Snapchat, they go to other channels where they feel like they will have some privacy. It, it's not, you know, that we say, okay, privacy is dead, we'll all just get used to it. It's sort of, it's odd, frankly, or I find it odd that right now there's, there's more, I feel, interest in privacy than ever when really we're several years down the road to, away from, you know, when we first all started getting personalized advertising online and all these different 
elements of invasion of privacy have cropped up as we've all moved our, more of our lives online. So I think it can take some time, but I think it's not that, oh, now drones are prevalent, you know, now advertisers and others know everything about us, now we're okay with it. I think there gets to be a move backwards when people realize like, oh, we've gotten to this place and we don't like it. And therefore both public attitudes and eventually the law will shift it back towards the middle where folks are more comfortable. Jason, Jake, anything to add? Or? So, I mean, um, one part of that um, idea that I very much agree with is the idea that I, I think the court probably um, will want, courts will want to continue steering away from this notion of, oh, uh, well, the tech, you know, is or isn't in just common society, therefore you do or don't have an expectation of privacy. I mean, the more recent case that invoked this was Kylo, the thermal imaging case. I, I can get one of those thermal imagers now on eBay for a couple hundred dollars. They said it was, you know, impossible to acquire for in public at the time. I can't imagine if, you know, the police went back to the Supreme Court and said, hey, these things are pretty cheap on eBay now. The Supreme Court would say, oh, I guess your privacy is gone. That's, you know, how supply and demand goes. It's cheap now. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I don't think that's a practical concept to play out in an area. Um, aerial surveillance include just this idea that, you know, as as the surveillance tech gets cheaper and it becomes a lot easier for government to have a lot more of it, suddenly your privacy rights go away. That just, it doesn't make sense. Um, one thing that I think is interesting to think about when looking at those 1980 cases, um, especially um, Sorala, the one um, involving a low-flying plane from 1986, which, you know, as scary as it is to say, you know, the mid-80s, that's about 35 years ago now. Um, I mean, that um, case, which is, you know, nearly four decades old, what the court described in the case was um, seeing something from a naked eye view, that's the specific phrase they use, uh, out of the plane. I mean, that's very much not the type of technology we're talking about now. I mean, it's not only cheaper and a lot more readily available, but it's a lot more powerful. I mean, it's impossible to know exactly what they would have said, but I think if instead of naked eye view, an officer glancing out the side of a plane, you said, okay, well, we have a drone or a plane that's going to, from a couple thousand feet away, get a precision view on someone's face and run a computer algorithm that'll, in half a second, identify who that individual is while they're in a private space, the court probably would have taken that um, in a little bit of a different respect. I mean, we're, that, that, that is, you know, in, you know, to paraphrase what Justice Roberts said, kind of like, in uh, Riley comparing horseback riding to flying to the moon in terms of the level of tech. So mm. you know, I, I think that you could take those cases and say, you know, we don't need to necessarily even overrule them, but we can, we can distinguish just what is aerial surveillance that they were regulating versus what is aerial surveillance now. I suppose you could imagine a, 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 police, a, a police chief with a good imagination might think, well, let's make sure to stay within Supreme Court bounds. We'll just do naked eye equivalent that will have drones with good precision, but we'll only zoom in so that it's what a naked eye would see at a thousand feet, right? Uh, to stay, but uh, I do hope that that would be something that the court would consider as a bit of a lousy argument. Uh, one hopes, uh, but uh, who knows? Uh, I want to ask Jason. Uh, so Jake showed us a map of the hundreds of departments that are using drones, and I'm sure those same departments are uh, also concerned about the uh, criminal use of drones. Uh, but what's the kind of legal 
navigation of any of those departments would have to go through if they were considering using any of the technologies that uh, you discussed earlier. So I'm, in a, I'm a, a county sheriff, and there are a few people who have been flying drones uh, into a local prison. Could I just buy a net gun and start using it without asking the federal government for permission or for guidance? Uh, could I uh, use traditional ammunition or maybe hire a bird of prey? What, what, what's, a, what's the actual process I'd have to go through in order to do this without running afoul of federal regulations and laws? Uh, well, I suppose you could use a bird of prey, plausible deniability, right? You don't control the animal. But uh, uh, otherwise, it's, um, there isn't really any opportunity for state and local law enforcement, or even at present federal law enforcement, to be able to use these systems because of that uh, you know, legal thicket that I, I mentioned earlier. Now, you know, this could be resolved in, in, in short order, at least for federal agencies. And I should note that the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy have some counter-drone authority already. But if you are you know, a local sheriff who is getting a phone call uh, every couple of days because someone is buzzing uh, one, of your, one of your residents with a drone and they want it to stop and they don't know who it is and they want uh, you know, some sort of accountability, you know, there isn't really much that that sheriff could do other than try to you know, locate the drone owner if they're within visual line of sight, if they're complying with FAA rules. If you want to get more sophisticated than that, the way that the federal legal system is structured today, you can't shoot it down, you can't purchase um, a net gun, you can't install any kind of counter UAS equipment. Um, you know, there was some debate about um, a, a, a radio it, was, it looks like a rifle. It's a, essentially a, a signal control device that allows you to seize control of a drone and bring it down. Uh, that's illegal under federal law. And so, um, you know, even under the legislative package which is in Congress uh, today, which would grant Justice and Homeland Security Department officials some uh, counter drone authority, the big question is, you know, what do we do with the state and locals? Because there's no grant of authority. Uh, for them in this legislation. And I think that one of the things that we have to be very upfront about is the fact that, you know, whether you were talking about that, you know, that incident that we just described where a sheriff is getting a phone call where someone is just causing a nuisance with a drone, or whether we're talking about a major terrorist attack with a drone, more times than not, the first people who are going to be called, the first people who are going to be responding are local law enforcement officials. And so the sooner that we get the ball rolling on that side of the equation, the better off we'll be. And so we at Heritage have actually put together a proposal for establishing a pilot program where under the auspices of the federal government, you would actually bring in uh, a select number of representative state and local law enforcement agencies and then deputize officers within those departments to act as counter UAS officers under federal authority. So that would give the feds control over you know, the rules of engagement, what systems would be used, how you would actually go about installing and, and using them, what, what venues would be protected, all of those sorts of questions. That would allow us to get data at the outset and be able to expedite this process so that we can start to more effectively protect against uh, some of the emerging threats that we see. Great, and I suppose a, a final question for Rebecca and, and Jake before we turn it over to you. Uh, what should the role of citizens be in the process, right? Uh, at the moment, it seems as if uh, certain uh, law enforcement agencies are quite keen to uh, use the technology, uh, sometimes without consulting uh, with, with citizens. Uh, is, uh, should citizens be taking a role in the deployment of surveillance technologies, maybe not just drones, but others? I mean, again, just speaking for myself, um, I, I certainly think it goes much more smoothly that way. I, I understand that police departments may be not accustomed to sort of consulting the public at large about how they use specific technologies, but I think something like drones that 
have the potential to affect the public more broadly, you know, particularly because when, if you're going to surveil an area, sort of the, the majority of people you're presumably going to catch on camera are, are not going to be criminal in any way, where I think a lot of police, police technology is potentially much more targeted than that. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, people sort of have the attitude of like, well, I'm not a criminal, so I'm not going to worry about that. Um, but if you are going to have a technology that sort of affects the broader public in a very visible fashion and is capturing data about sort of majority of folks are, are not doing anything criminal at any given time, um, I think it, it is wise to engage the public to some degree, if nothing else, to prevent the kind of backlash that you've seen in some cities where they, where they failed to do that. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I agree. I, in general, think that when you're dealing with any type of broad, innovative, or dragnet surveillance, that it's a sort of thing where there should be a public debate and approval. And one of the biggest challenges that privacy advocates face a lot is that there is kind of a turn up the surveillance first and ask permission later standard that the government takes in a lot of ways. I mean, I think the most infamous example we saw was um, bulk collection of phone metadata through the Patriot Act, which really was it was meant for getting specific items related to investigation, and suddenly we find out uh, almost 10 years later, oh, actually, this is collecting every American's phone data, um, and suddenly, instead of passing a law and debating whether we should allow that, we're having to debate whether we should shut that down because it just started happening. But you see it on all kinds of small levels with things from you know, drones to um, you know, like the type of manned spy planes that I mentioned, like persistent surveillance, to facial recognition, to license plate readers, where you have very invasive, powerful surveillance programs that um, sometimes aren't even made in public awareness, let alone receive public approval. And then the burden is on people to say, we don't want to be surveilled. Um, so yeah, I, I am all for going the other way around whenever we can in the public debate. And you know, I'll uh, sure. I'll echo some of those sentiments. And, and you know, we, it's a rare thing for a case to to make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that is is far from the only venue for resol for resolving a lot of these policy questions. You know, the Fourth Amendment allows us to do X, but that does not mean that it's a mandate that we do X. So I think that as we're figuring out the contours of how we're going to uh, deploy drone technology, whether it's for the surveillance system or the counter drone uh, side of things, it's, uh, incumbent upon, um, it's incumbent upon us as citizens to inform our lawmakers about what our, our preferences are. And a lot of that's gonna take place at the local level, not just in the Supreme Court, not just in Congress, but a lot of that is going to reflect the, the norms and the, the interests of particular communities. Great, thank you. Well, now we are in the uh, public Q&A session. Uh, please wait to be called on uh, by my colleagues in the back here. Uh, wait for the microphone, and please announce your name and affiliation. Uh, I would remind you all this is the question and answer session, not the statement and answer session. Uh, questions are sentences that end in question marks, and you'll get extra points if you can do it in one breath. Uh, I will start with this gentleman in the front. Gabe Goldberg, freelance writer. I volunteer with the Fairfax County Police Department, and I've been drafted for a task force on setting policies and practices for use of drones. So this couldn't be more timely. The question that I have is Fairfax County has a couple of those 500,000 or $3 million helicopters, and I've seen some of the scenarios where they've used them for crime scene or investigation. The question would be, would they be on safe ground using a drone 
for anything that they're now using a helicopter for. They'll launch Fairfax 1 if there's a burglary and somebody has escaped and they'll do aerial surveillance and they have incredible night vision cameras and some of the videos are hilarious where somebody thinks he's hiding and in fact the bird of prey helicopter is tracking him with people, not doing it automatically. But the question is, would a drone mission that replaces a current helicopter mission, which is done without a warrant, it's, a, it's an exigent circumstance, it's something is going on right now, uh, would a drone mission be safe ground uh, simply replacing launching the helicopter? Yes, under current Supreme case law, and, and I would imagine future Supreme Court case law, that's it's would be treated the same. I don't know if anyone's on that. Yeah, um, def definitely under current um, uh, Supreme Court doctrine and federal law, not necessarily under state law. Um, as I said before, there are a few states that do regulate drones and regulate them by saying, you know, as opposed, not saying this you know, aerial surveillance is limited, but by saying, unmanned aerial vehicles are this, and then they define drones and they say, you can only use unmanned aerial vehicles in certain ways. So there might be um, a state limit, um, just as far as policy preferences. You know, I think that you know, so, you know, some of the things like you mentioned, exigent circumstances, looking at crime scenes, uh, you know, just gathering forensic data of a location as opposed to you know, tracking a person or snooping at a person in private property. I think those don't really raise the same level of privacy and civil liberties concerns, and it could probably be fairly easily written into legislation regulating drones to allow those types of activities or specific circumstances. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's the ideal solution, but sometimes, at least as far as the way states are taking it, they're singling out drones, um, uh, both because it's a little easier to writing a regulation for a drone, and I think also, honestly, because of that creepy factor that we mentioned before. I'll, I'll yeah. just add to it that um, in addition to state rules that may be in place for governing the use of law enforcement uh, uh, drones, and I'm not sure, you said Fairfax, right? I'm not sure if uh, Virginia has those or not. Uh, there are FAA regulations that uh, police departments have to be in compliance with as well. So there's operationally a few things um, separate and apart from concerns about privacy and, and that sort of thing. So I only mention this because I am a, a resident of Virginia, but I think, and it's been a while since I looked at the legislation, that Virginia is one of the states that does have a warrant requirement for at least some drone activities, but I would double-check on the exact language there. Um, yeah. Anyone else? Uh, I'll take the gentleman in the back. Thank you. Um, Ms. Lipman, you mentioned that uh, as the government terrain gets defined, uh, it might spill over to the private sector. Um, at some point, would we see a clash between First Amendment rights for journalism community, for instance, versus the Fourth Amendment protections? Uh, for instance, if a paparazzi wanted to use a drone to take pictures of a celebrity or you know, things like that, um, has that terrain been defined yet? I mean, the Fourth Amendment speaks to like criminal activity and warrants, so I don't think there would be like like journalists and such wouldn't need to worry about the Fourth Amendment. Um, but I do certainly imagine that you could have folks making First Amendment arguments about their rights to use drones in that way. But I think the law would tend to side with if you have restrictions that are in place for safety reasons. I mean, the same way the First Amendment has bounds, you know, time and place restrictions. You can't just you know literally say anything you want in any given context, I think any kind of safety-oriented regulations upon drones would sort of uh, 
not cramped, but you know, your, your First Amendment rights wouldn't be limitless. But I'm so I'm just going to use moderator's prerogative here and maybe turn it into a question for Jason as well. But so, isn't there a worry that a uh, an aggressive or overzealous uh, law enforcement agency might view a protest that people want to cover because it's journalistic interest, right? And think, well, we could just cite public safety and get rid of these pesky drones that are recording. Uh, protests about an embar- the, the behavior of our officers or something like that. Isn't that a worry? Uh, well, I suppose that it could be. But again, this gets back to what sort of rules, what sort of uh, uh, guidance you're going to be putting out um, in terms of using these sorts of systems. You know, when is it appropriate? How do you uh, judge a particular drone is a perfectly harmless, innocent, possibly First Amendment protected drone versus one which is actually threatening public safety? So it gets back to, you know, how you make those determinations, what rules you put in place, and then how you apply those rules in the real world. And, uh, you know, there's certainly going to be, uh, in the last panel, we heard a lot about some new technologies technologies that are still very much in the developmental stage, remote identification and eventually unmanned traffic management that will make it a lot easier uh, for people who are responsible for protecting, say, a mass public gathering to be able to identify, you know, that's a CNN drone, that's an MSNBC drone, that drone has no remote identification, that, you know, is a red flag right there. So those sorts of questions will, I think, become easier to answer, but it does come back to the rules and how you make those assessments. Digital license plates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jake's ears have perked up at that prospect. Um, all right, any, uh, yeah, I'll take the gentleman in the middle. Thank you. Uh, Dave Rabinowitz, retired. Uh, a cruise missile is basically a drone. What's the current legal status about the defending against the cruise missile? Uh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, defending, uh, defending against a cruise missile is, is, is certainly going to be within the context of the Department of Defense's um, uh, prerogative for defending uh, national security. And possibly, you know, you're talking about National Guard as well. But, I, I, you know, I don't think that very many people are going to have cruise missiles. At least I hope not. Uh, <laughs> Jake, did you have something to add on that? I, I sorry. Um, no, I mean, I think you know. I remember just once someone asking, you know, what what is the difference between a, a drone and a missile, and I thought about it for like a good ten minutes, just like completely. I don't, I don't know. And then it's just someone just said loiter time, and I was like, oh yes, that's exactly so. Yeah, but I mean, that's the sort of thing that I think is actually one of those things that's special about drones is that they can kind of just hover in place. I mean, especially for their surveillance context, that makes them different than a lot of other aerial vehicles other than helicopters, which tend to be very big and loud. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're not inherently destructive. I mean, a a missile sort of by definition, I think, is going to destroy something, or a drone ideally is not destroying anything. We're not going to have the MSNBC cruise missile. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully Um, not. Right. Uh, Any other questions from the audience? Yes. Brendan in the front. Thank you, Brendan Schulman from DJI. So uh, we've talked this afternoon about the benefits of drones and also the coming remote identification requirements. Is anyone on the panel concerned, sort of the inverse of some of the issues you've talked about, that people who are using drones, either for personal purposes or for business, they're out there surveying new sites for commercial development. If there's a remote identification solution that gathers all of their drone operational data into a system or database somewhere, there will be an invasion of the drone pilots or the drone businesses' 
uh, privacy or Fourth Amendment rights, uh, essentially turning a remote ID solution license plate in the sky, which I agree with, into something more like a persistent government monitoring of how people are using that technology. Do you see that issue? And if so, is there a way to address it? I think it's an interesting question, but the first thing that comes to mind is that there are certain activities that the government regulates for a variety of policy reasons, often dealing with safety. So you can make the same argument about a plane, right? Like you don't have the right to just sort of fly your plane wherever you want. You're going to be tracked when you do that because we have a compelling safety interest in knowing what planes are in the sky and where they're going. Um, so I don't think there would be necessarily a, a Fourth Amendment implication there that the, that the courts would get very concerned about because they would see the, the real safety concerns and the real benefits, frankly, of a system where we know whose drone belongs to who. I think they would be sympathetic to an argument about, well, how else are we going to know who's flying this, particularly as drones. You know, battery life gets better, the technology gets better, where you're not necessarily always going to be within the line of sight. And if, you know, you've got somebody who's flying a drone from a mile away, you obviously need a system to know who that drone belongs to for just public safety reasons, if not actively thinking about criminal possibilities as well. I'm concerned about a couple of specific elements of, um, of that remote ID um, problem that you've just highlighted. One is, um, you know, if you are flying a drone, should everybody in the world just be able to point a phone at it and then, you know, basically see an augmented reality picture that says, you know, Brendan Schulman, here's your address and all that sort of a thing. I'd, I'd like to see some restrictions on that so you get to something which is more like, you know, I can see a license plate number, but I don't know who owns the car. Law enforcement has access to that information, but not everybody in the world necessarily has access to that. And then, of course, if you're talking about gathering and aggregating all of this data in a single federal repository, that raises some concerns about you know, cybersecurity. And certainly protecting uh, that repository of information uh, would be very important for the government to take seriously. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we have different levels of privacy for different, um, for different types of technology we use. I mean, on the one hand, cars, you know, we put license plate on cars, I think, most privacy advocates would say that's a you know quite reasonable and very much necessary limit on your privacy is that your car is ID'd. On the other hand, I mean the Supreme Court has had cases saying the government's not allowed to stick a tracking device on your car and just follow you wherever you go. Um, you know we probably get a little closer to that when we start to talk about the types of what you would necessarily be tagging on drones, sort of um, you know digitally based identification standards because. You know, because you're going to be scanning it using a computer or using radio, you're going to be almost certainly tagging its location in an automated way that you don't when you know an officer writes down a license plate as someone's driving away from a crime scene or sees a you know a car and a number on a car that's speeding or something like that. Um, you know that's the reason why I, why on the one hand, while I don't mind license plates at all, I do get somewhat worried about automated license plate readers where police could potentially scan thousands or hundreds of thousands of cars without any human effort. But then again, you know, we also have to factor that in the same way walking is different than driving a car, um, you know, flying a drone is different than a car as well. So, I mean, I think it's all about finding that right balance of what type of application is this tech, how is it used, and, and what, where, you know, does the balance hit in terms of what's the right amount of government power and knowledge versus what individuals should be able to keep private about themselves. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we've made it to uh, the final minute, and I'm well aware that the four of us are the only barrier between you and the reception. Uh, I would just ask you um, all to join me in thanking uh, Jake, Jason, and Rebecca. Okay.